Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Wow. So thank you everybody for joining us for this live recording of the Hiraith podcast, uh, live from the FUW stand at the Royal Welsh Show. And um, we're going to be talking about uh, the impact of Brexit on farming and rural communities. And today we are joined by uh, Gitto Beb. Uh, Gitto was on the front line of politics during the lead up and fallout of the Brexit referendum, having served as the MP for Aberconway from 2010 to 2019. Uh, during his political career, Gitto held ministerial positions in both the Ministry of Defence, the Wales Office and the Government Whip's Office, the latter experience undoubtedly useful uh, for his role as the whip of the so-called Rebel Alliance during the Brexit battles of 2018 and 2019. Nowadays, uh, more likely seen in the Welsh countryside than Whitehall as the FUW's Group Chief Executive. He's well versed on agricultural policy and is acutely aware of the challenges farmers in Wales face on a daily basis post Brexit. We're also joined by Samuel Kurt. Sam was elected as a member of Senate for Carmarthen West and South Pembrokeshire at the last Senate election. He's subsequently been appointed as the Shadow Minister for Rural Affairs and the Welsh Language. He's also on very good Welsh farming stock. We're also joined by Carol Hughes. Carol is a fifth generation farmer from just outside Llangollen. Having uh, obtained a degree in agriculture and animal science from Aberystwyth University, she's travelled around the world working in a variety of agricultural fields. She's the former Montgomeryshire YFC County Chair and current Regional Vice Chair of the National Sheep Association. Hello, Carol. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, thank you. Very well. So we're going to start off with you, Gitto, if we may. Uh, obviously, it's well known that you resigned from government uh, over the UK government's handling of Brexit. What was behind that decision? Well, um, I think it became obvious to me um, in about 2018 um, that the government of Theresa May was not going to be able to deliver a practical, pragmatic Brexit settlement um, because the whole debate in Parliament was um, hijacked, I think, by elements of the Conservative Party, uh, the European Research Group in particular, uh, who took full advantage of the election results of 2017, so moved away from let's try and get Brexit to work in a way which is economically advantageous to the UK, to a position of highlighting that on every single issue, sovereignty was going to um, be the be-all and end-all of, of the settlements. And I think the weakness of the government's position became increasingly apparent to me when concessions were being made time after time uh, to the EIG. And I finally snapped when uh, I had been at a military trade show all day and um, I was informed that... Uh, uh, amendments to a piece of legislation by the EIG had been accepted by government and I, I informed the lips office that I wouldn't be voting for those amendments and uh, I promptly resigned that evening when I voted against the amendments and I think Laura Kunzberg at, the po at that point um, tweeted that I was the first minister that she was aware of who resigned because he supported government's policy <laughs> well it was government's policy until about six o'clock that evening but it wasn't government's policy by 10 o'clock that evening, so that was the end of my ministerial career. So um, I just felt that we weren't going to have a, a settlement that um, took into account the economic issues, and I found it really difficult to be a member of a Conservative government which was being pushed in a direction which was ignoring economic reality, because the reason I was in the Conservative Party was primarily because I feel that in order to have a functioning country, functioning society, you need a very strong economy and I found it very difficult to be involved in debates where people were saying interesting things such as um, F business and the individual in question then subsequently became Prime Minister which was you know one of the low points of our history as a country so yeah I couldn't I couldn't stomach being involved with uh, a, a, a 
party that was disintegrating into a, a new Kip Light version of what they used to be. How much was Wales and agriculture specifically considered by the UK government during this whole Brexit process? I don't think it was given a second thought, to be perfectly honest to you. Um, and that's one of the things that really did hurt me because, um, in my view, um, agriculture is crucial to the communities that I've grown up in. Um, it's crucial to the future of the Welsh language, I would argue. It's one of the few industries which are almost almost 50% Welsh speakers within agriculture. And I think that um, the reality of um, uh, an economically unviable Brexit was going to hit especially Upland Hill farmers more than anybody. And in my constituency of Aberconwy, the population was predominantly along the coast. Um, obviously very little to do with agriculture along the coast, um, but inland the mainstay of the economy would be the agricultural sector. It would be upland hill farmers primarily. Um, and I thought that um, the way we were going in terms of a, a Brexit settlement, which would be business unfriendly, uh, was going to be extremely damaging to the agricultural community. Um, and I felt very, very strongly that I couldn't be supportive of that issue. You know, my father's business, he was a small town accountant with practice in Kerrigadrydion, Pusheli and Carnarvon. And you can't have been involved with something like a an accountancy practice without being aware of the fact that the contribution to the economy of the agricultural sector is much more than just the accounts of a single farm, because every single farm would be buying locally, would be spending money with a local um, tractor repair <laughs> um, preparer, they would be spending money on builders, they'd be spending money on building sheds and so forth, there'd be somebody doing their fencing for them. So the involvement of the agricultural sector in the wider economy is, 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 is obvious. And obviously, if agriculture falls over, then what happens to all that support structure around it? And, you know, the Farmers Union of Wales, you can see that very clearly. The Farmers Union of Wales has around 120 staff, but two-thirds of them are actually in the insurance business. And the insurance business exists to support the agricultural sector. 85-90% of our business is agricultural-related. Um, and again, it's a great example of the way in which the agricultural sector supports jobs in the wider rural community. So, yes, I think uh, an unfriendly Brexit is not going to be anything other than a challenge to the agricultural community. And I'm sure that the Welsh agricultural community are up for the challenge, but it will be a challenge. Did you have much uh, of a conversation with the Welsh government during this process on, on agriculture? No, very little, uh, very little. I, I think, to be perfectly frank, it became a case of Westminster talking to itself. Um, the real battles were not even across the aisle. Uh, the real battles during the Brexit period was within the Conservative Party. Um, and it's a fact, you know, I was in the Whip's office when the 2017 general election was called. I was also in the Wales office at the same time because I wore two hats. So I was a Wales office minister and a Whip. And that um, election was called when Theresa May was flying high in the polls. Uh, there had just been a set of local elections which were very, very good. And the decision was taken to go for a, a general election, not in order to trans Labour, but actually to marginalised the EIG. Uh, lo and behold, nobody expected Corbyn to appeal to the Great British public. Um, and so we ended up obviously with um, the majority being lost and therefore rather than marginalising the EIG, the decision to go for an election allowed the EIG to become centre stage. And yes, it wasn't it basically an argument within the Conservative Party and people on my views lost comprehensively. So there we are. Sam, uh, obviously Probably no great surprise that you're not the biggest fan of the Welsh Government's decisions in terms of agriculture, but what kind of discussions are happening in the Senate at the moment relating to both, both agriculture generally, but the sort of impacts of Brexit or the post-Brexit reality we face? So the two perspectives really, as a, as a member of the Economy, Trade and Rural Affairs Committee, we've spent um, quite a few evidence sessions tackling 
the impact of trade deals, post-Brexit trade deals, and, and how they affect, uh, affect uh, the economy as a whole, but also specifically rural affairs. And we've taken evidence from the FUW and NFU, Cymru, and, and other stakeholders and organisations just to see what the impact is. And uh, and that is a live discussion still, especially off the, the back of the news of uh, the UK government's involvement and uh, uh, acceptance within the CPTPP. Um, and I'll say the acronym because I couldn't tell you what those letters, say that. <laughs> each, each individual letter stands for, but I've, I've learned CPTPP uh, uh, to, to recite. Uh, it's, it's a, it is a live issue. It is specifically live at the moment as well, given the post-Brexit opportunities within uh, subsidies. Uh, and I say the word opportunity because in the statement from the Rural Affairs Minister uh, only two weeks ago in the last week of term around the sustainable farming scheme, which is post-Brexit support for farmers, um, using that as an opportunity to say, look, actually, the common agricultural policy wasn't working. And that was a new European directive, um, 40 years of common agricultural policy directing agriculture and specifically food production in a specific direction. Our leave of the European Union has given us an opportunity to potentially readdress the balance and rebalance how we do that and now that's going to be the big battle is what happens with those subsidies and how we are able to get an agricultural economy as, as Gitter was saying that is so integral to the wider economy of of rural Wales but also the whole of Wales given that actually Wales is a rural country with urban parts in it not an urban country with some rural parts in it 80% uh, of Wales is agricultural land or, or countryside so that's the the importance of it and if we're looking to get a vibrant economic agricultural community which supports our culture, our Welsh language, if it supports our, our rural schools, allowing a younger generation to live and thrive in the countryside, that all comes off of the back of a strong agricultural economy. So the real challenge now is looking at, firstly, the impact of, of trade deals and how we uh, maximise opportunities and mitigate risks, but also ensuring that the day-to-day -day running of agriculture has supportive policies, has the ability to be um, proactive in stimulating farming rather than creating potential barriers to productivity and barriers to economic viability. Carol, what impacts have you noticed on the ground since Britain left the EU? I think it's become more apparent um, people probably didn't understand what they were voting for initially. Um, I think speaking to a few Sort of friends and that that are voting, you know, they were, they just saw it as getting out of Europe was the best thing going to be. They didn't have to <clears throat> abide by any rules, and it was going to be the best thing ever. And I think once once it all, you know, it, it came through, it was soon they soon realised what we did get from them and 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 how important the connection was when it comes to, you know, moving pro moving products and everything. And um, yeah, for, like for for me at a personal level at home, it's just the just the unknown now really, and it's it's not being able to develop our business. You know, we. Half our farm is is rented, um, and my landlord and it's no no fault of his. He he just he doesn't know what to do with it. You know he's looking now at potential tree planting because it's a three hundred acre block and there's quite a few blocks that could go into trees. But then again, he appreciates that it needs to be farmed as well and needs to be producing producing lamb. And you know it's for us it's at a role. You know we've gone now. We signed up initially for for three or four years with him, and the last th last two years it's just been well just roll over the contract. There's been no certain nothing nothing certain for us. And you know we. It's it's a it's a really good block of land. We you know we want to invest in it, but again we don't want to be doing it neither because it's it could potentially be a waste of money for us. And I think that's why what, what I've heard speaking to a few of the young young farmers in the area. It's the same kind of thing. It's that it's that unknown that it's going to holding them back at the moment. And it's you know if it's going to go one way, we just kind of need to know which way it's going to go, and sooner rather than later before it does too much damage. Gitto and Gitto, does that correlate with what your members are saying? And Sam, does that sort of correlate with what your constituents are saying? 
Well, certainly from our members' perspective, it's that uncertainty mm. which is really creating a problem. Because when you're planning um, a business, then you obviously need to plan two, three, four years ahead. But for farming, it's often even longer because these are long-term commitments. So if you want to spend money improving land that you're renting, then obviously it's a long-term commitment and you need to have a business plan which reflects that um, investments that you're making. And so what we are getting back from our members very clearly is that this uncertainty that we have. And by the way, I don't think that that uncertainty is necessarily a bad thing in the long term because you, know, you could have had a situation in which the Welsh Government's initial consultation Brexit and our land could have been implemented and I think we'd have, yeah. we'd have swapped uncertainty for a disaster. Yeah. Um, so I'd rather have uncertainty than what would have happened with Brexit and our land. And we are seeing, obviously, we, we're having the opportunity in Wales now to have continue to have these discussions. And to be honest, evolution is working well in one way because we have an experiment going on in England which is probably not working very well which is beneficial to the Welsh Government in terms of how they actually um, develop their policies. And I'm sure Sam has been able to make this point in the Senate on a regular basis. Mm. You know, you don't want to end up in a situation where you have an agricultural support scheme with very little sign-up from farmers, because ultimately that doesn't give you an environmental scheme, it doesn't give you a farming support scheme. So the uncertainty uh, that has been touched upon is definitely something that we are seeing. But, you know, I just wanted to make the point, well, that this really is a big problem in terms of your business planning and your ability to develop your farm. It's not necessarily 100% a bad thing because we might still end up in a situation where the SFS is much better than what it could have been if we'd gone headlong into Brexit and Orlando, the type of ideas that have been implemented by DEFRA in England. But, you know, Sam might have a different perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Brexit was never an event. It was a process. And it's taken a long time. Uh, and it's absolutely right that the 2018 consultation Brexit and our land was not where we would have wanted the industry to be and where support for the industry would have been. And that's and whether it's it's Welsh government uh, purposefully taking their time or lack of capacity with other things happening that they've had to take their time. It's been beneficial because we have been able to make the point the farming unions have been able to make the point that. If you are looking to achieve the four sustainable land management objectives highlighted within the Agricultural Bill, which is due Royal Assent later this year, then you need farmers to sign up to the Sustainable Farming Scheme. If they're not signing up, if there's a barrier to participation, then those objectives are going to be lost. Farmers are going to loss, lose one of the most important support networks that they have available to them, uh, financially, economically, uh, support networks that they have. And that is bad news for the wider economy as well, and our environmental and agricultural goals that we want to see if we're looking at being um, a food producing nation. So it, it, uncertainty has been uh, nervousness and it has created tensions, but it's also allowed a little bit more time on development of policy. Um, it, that's not over either. We've got places to go with the sustainable farming scheme, to be truthful. It's not where it needs to be, but my word, agricultural policy is in a better place now, thanks to taking time than it would have been post-Brexit in those initial 12, 24 months. So, I mean, much has been made of the, the perceived unfairness of CAP, and then obviously we're having this discussion this week about this new subsidy regime. Carol, what has been your assessment on the ground of this announcement from the Welsh Government about their new subsidy scheme? Like, like, we've, like we've discussed, it, it, it's, it needs its time and it needs to be right, and it's just going to be... I think for farmers on the ground, you know, it, it's it seems a long time, and it, it, I said, like, like I said, uncertainty isn't isn't always going to be a negative, but I think for us day to day on the farm life, it probably is a bit, and it's it, that's what we that's the frustration I think probably we, they've got is you know we're still another day. Farmers are really good at putting their heads down and ploughing on basically, um, but there's only so much that can that can do to a certain level, um, and yeah, so 
like I said, I don't really, I'm not the best at probably digesting, you know, the stuff that comes from there. Because but then again, that's where I, I fully believe that every farmer should be involved in, in, a, in a union and, and get get to those meetings and get to the local regions to discuss things because it is digested at a much better level for them. So, yeah. So should we talk trees? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> what What was your initial assessment of the Welsh government's announcement? Well, you know, obviously the announcement on the ten percent tree cover I think came out at the last show. Um, and it's an area that uh, we are very concerned about. Obviously, the uh, two unions have been arguing uh, very strongly that the um, uniform policy of 10% cover would not be acceptable, uh, and it isn't acceptable. And it's one of the great things that we have seen over the past few years is the two unions have been actually working very, very, very closely together because on this issue, we need to get a, a structure in place which will encourage farmers to be part of the scheme moving forward. Yeah. So on the trees issue, you know, the... the, 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 the I think that people want to make it a very simple argument so they can say trees are good and farmers are bad because they don't want to plant trees. But that's not the issue. The real issue is that farmers have no problem whatsoever with the concept of doing environmental work on their farms. But that environmental work has to also be balanced with economic realities uh, that some farmers will face. So if you're a dairy farmer who's invested heavily in you know, new milking parlour and then you have a certain amount of um, milking cows that you need in order to make that viable, and if you were certainly to are being asked to, to put 10% of your productive land aside, you'd probably have to reduce your herd size. If you reduce your herd size, then the financial returns will not be sufficient to pay for the investment that you made when you were not anticipating 10% of your land being taken away. So quite clearly, there's an issue there which needs to be resolved. I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that um, the, the First Minister on Monday, I think I'm right in saying, uh, highlighted the word flexibility on several occasions. And I think that's what we need from the government. We need them to say... Uh, we will work with you because we understand that in some parts of Wales it's going to be very difficult to have a tree planting at 10%. In some parts of the agricultural sector it's going to be almost impossible. It's incredibly unfair on somebody who's depending upon tenants, tenancy, for example. You know, what rights do you have to plant trees on, yeah. on, 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 on the land that you're renting? It's not yours to do that with. So we, we do need to get this right. And I think the, the reality is that we need to carry on talking to governments, which is the commitments that both unions have made, um, and ultimately, the government needs to get this working because the question that's been asked at this show quietly is ultimately, what does the what does a successful, sustainable farm scheme look like? And the answer is, it must be a, a scheme which has a huge take up by farmers because that means the environmental aims will be delivered because obviously that would be part of the scheme. But it also means that the scheme is being accepted by farmers and has been economically viable. If the scheme is not economically viable, there will be no sign up and the environmental aspirations of the Welsh government would be lost. So trees is actually, you know, it's it's, it's an easy discussion mm. point, but the, the realities behind the issue of trees is much more complex, and that's where we need to focus our arguments over the next uh, next few months. Sam? Well, we need to understand what Welsh Government are looking to achieve with the Sustainable Farming Scheme policy, and the 10% tree planting has dominated the discussion, um, but we need to understand why they're looking to achieve that target. Is it purely for having those trees in the ground? And being able to use satellite imagery to understand the canopy cover of Wales? Is it to sequester carbon? Is it to promote habitat restoration? At the moment, that 10% is, is causing anxiety because we're not sure what we're looking to do. If it's carbon sequestration, there's better ways of doing that. If there's habitat restoration, there's better ways of doing that, but still underpinned by the fact that tree planting is viable in some areas, and some farmers will absolutely welcome it. There's farmers already above the 10% tree coverage in some areas of Wales, showing that that is the option 
But I think that's what's caused concern is putting the figure, an arbitrary figure of 10% on it blanket for every farm across Wales. That's caused anxiety. And that anxiety means that the wider elements of the sustainable farming schemes haven't been looked at potentially in as much detail as they need to be. Uh, and that's where we're coming at it from as and myself within within Cardiff Bay is we're not against tree plotting. We're not against it. And the phrase often used is the right tree in the right place for the right reason. It does provide cover for um, a stock. It does provide uh, flood mitigation if, if trees are planted correctly in certain areas. Absolutely. And let's target and support that. But at the same time, if you're looking at saying that a farm is not viable because it's not able to do 10% tree planting, I don't know of any other business where government turns around and says you have to decrease your productivity by 10% effectively, which is what that tree covering policy is. So if that 10% was able to be brought back or have, as the First Minister has, has rightly stated, and, and the Minister, the Rural Affairs Minister as well, that flexibility, then I think that there is good progress to be made on this. And that's why the consultation at the end of this year is so important. The fact that the Minister brought that statement out ahead of the Royal Welsh Show and the other agricultural shows this summer, incredibly important. But we need to understand that behind the headline, there is still further detail that needs to be looked at, uh, including the financials, including uh, what we are looking to achieve in terms of productivity. Do we want our productivity to remain the same? Do we want to increase productivity in a non-exploitive way? There is a lot of detail that needs to be uh, mined out. Uh, and that's the interesting part of this with the Sustainable Farming Scheme is it's brand new, it's a new opportunity. So we've seen this week, obviously, the, the UK government announced the, uh, that they will provide Welsh whisky the protected geographical indication status, which joins beef, lamb and leeks. What kind of real impact will that have, though? Sam. I, I think it's it's twofold. I think it's a nod and a hat tip that we in Wales have fantastic food producers uh, and product. I think that's important that we, and uh, saying this not with a pol political hat on, but with a farmer's son hat on. Sometimes we're not the best at saying how good we are at some things, and we should be shouting a bit more loudly at how amazing the product is that's coming out of Wales. And uh, we're very good at saying that we're good sometimes to each other down the mark when we're looking at cattle and saying so-and-so uh, -so always raise fantastic um, stock. But we need to portray that message to the consumer if we're looking to ensure that a Welsh-British produce is on, on the farm table. But it also, in a post-Brexit world, it gives a little bit of um, understanding to the wider world of what product we have here in Wales. And as proud as I am of being a Welshman and the Welsh flag, the Union Jack in terms of trade does carry weight. Uh, and it's let's use that to our advantage. If we're looking to export more product, let's use that ability to, to row in behind uh, a, a nation that's always understood to be at the forefront of many things. Let's use that to our advantage. Let's be there to, um, to, make, to maximise that opportunity. Peter? Well, obviously, from a, from a perspective of the PGI and so forth, you know, the designation of the Welsh whiskey, nobody would uh, would oppose that in any way, shape, or form. Um, but the reality is, I think the um, emphasis on trade and international trade is is correct and it's important. Um, the agricultural sector in Wales does need to export. Um, what I would disagree with Sam is, I don't think that we're sending that message out very well when we're withdrawing from, you know, a, a single market which was created by none other than Margaret Thatcher. Um, the idea that that single market was something that should be opposed by people who believe in free trade is a nonsense. Um, now, we do have a, a free trade agreement in terms of tariffs with the European Union, which is very welcome, um, but it's not free trade in the same way as being part of the single market. And I think that has been a problem for, um, for uh, Welsh agriculture, and it will carry on being a problem for Welsh agriculture. But we are where we are. So are we opposed to uh, trade agreements? Well, we're opposed to trade agreements where agricultural produce is being used as a, 
as a bargaining chip by the UK government in order to get the publicity of having a trade deal. Uh, I knew full well that uh, the former Agricultural Minister George Eustace was opposed to these deals in private, um, but sometimes you have to accept that you've lost an argument in cabinet. But it is quite clear to me that his comments post uh, his ministerial career in the House of Commons as to the way in which these trade deals were negotiated shows quite clearly that agricultural produce was not prioritised in relation to the trade deal with Australia. It was not prioritised with regards to the trade deal with New Zealand. And yes, we can obviously talk about the importance of making sure that we work as four nations to ensure that we have a growing market uh, overseas. Um, but I don't think that anybody can accept that the government has shown any degree of privatisation uh, for Welsh agriculture or UK agriculture in the trade deals that we've signed so far. And I think I'm right in saying that the current Prime Minister said quite clearly um, that they were all about the publicity. She's, I think she said something quite recently that, you know, they were they were there just to make a statement, but now we'll be serious moving forward. Well, you know, if you're opening up the UK market to agricultural produce from Australia and New Zealand, uh, with, no, with literally no restrictions in due course, and you can say that that was actually just tokenism to show that we can do trade deals, I think, you know, that is really utilising uh, agriculture as a bargaining chip and showing no concern whatsoever to the communities that depend upon agriculture for their livelihoods. So I do sincerely hope that moving forward, uh, the obsession with cheap publicity um, in tabloids is not going to be driving our trade policy moving forward because what has happened so far is worse than anything that anybody could have anticipated because the idea of having freedom from the collective bargaining for trade deals of the European Union was that we could do things which were more beneficial to UK PLC. Well, that's not what we did. What we did was we created a trade deal which is marginal, of marginal benefits um, to the UK economy. But we did it because it was a huge amount of benefits to a certain floppy-haired individual who wanted publicity on the front page of the Sun. And, and the reality of the situation is, you know, the figures, the economic performance of the UK there's one part of the UK which is motoring ahead at this point in time, and it is the one part of the UK with open access to the single market, it's Northern Ireland. And, and you know, whatever the strategy of the DUP in terms of their, uh, of their support for Brexit, the one thing that they have done is they really do have the best of both worlds. And when you hear the Prime Minister going to Belfast and saying to farmers in Northern Ireland, you've got the best of both worlds, you've got access to the UK market, you've got access to the common market. And so what's the message to Welsh farmers? Well, we're giving you second best. And it's just a nonsense. There was not a single Conservative MP in Northern Ireland, and yet in the rest of the UK, where we do have Conservative representation, we've been taught to take second best. So I do genuinely hope that the attitude to trade deals changes. I know that Sam is sympathetic to a lot of what I'm saying, and obviously Sam is also of you know. So Sam has to has to support the party's position. But I think what we can both agree on is that moving forward, we need to have less of the obsession with cheap headlines and more real consideration as to how trade deals moving forward because post-Brexit we definitely do need trade deals. How can we have trade deals which reflect the realities of what we need? And a good example would be, you know, CTPPP. Uh, it's, it's going to, and I, I, did, I never remember how many P's to give it. CTPPP is going to be problematic for us because there's issues in terms of the access um, to the UK market for Mexican eggs, for example. There's a real concern as to Canadian dairy. But the one good thing is, um, in Canada, for example, when the Canadian government does trade deals, they take into account the needs of the provinces. And this is one of the things that, um, again, I don't understand about the change from when I became fully involved with the Conservative Party. You know, the Conservative Party, in my view, believes in small governments and believes in pushing power down. 
Now, my biggest concern about Welsh government has always been that Welsh government has set powers up from local communities, set powers up from local authorities. But one of the things that really concerns me is the lack of any consultation with Welsh governments, Scottish governments uh, from Westminster when it comes to trade deals. And yet, when the Canadians go out and do trade deals and do really good trade deals, um, they have to have the remit from the provinces. So the, 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 the government in, in, in Canada, the provincial government, can actually say, well, you know, that's a red line. So the dairy, the dairy sector can say in a, in a certain province, that's a red line for us, and it won't be part of the negotiation. So if we are moving forward and we're serious about being grown up about trade deals moving forward, then we need to have much more coordination and cooperation uh, between Welsh governments and UK governments, and that does depend on UK governments changing its attitude and a willingness to be open about these things. You know, we talk about taking back control. Well, where was the referendum on CTPPPD? Um, I can't remember anybody being asked, do you approve of this? It passed through parliaments without any consultation whatsoever. And we're actually being asked to provide evidence as to whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing after the deal has been signed. Now, I thought we were taking back control. That seems to me as if we're just losing control because we have no voice on the issue. So uh, my, my one ask of main, all the main parties moving forward is take, take trade policy seriously. Trade policy can make a difference to Welsh agriculture, but it needs to be done properly. I kind of have to give Sam the right reply there. Don't no, I? no, no, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we're straying slightly into the constitutional discussion there in terms of relationships between um, the four constituent parts of the United Kingdom. And uh, it's a valid point. We need to understand the, the impact of these trade deals on different sectors, not just sectors, but different sectors within different constituent parts of the UK. And uh, as a Conservative, and, and I think it has been the policy of the Conservative Party, that it is in favour of devolution. Because if you look at what's happening in England at the moment in terms of mayoral uh, setups across across England. Um, so we need to understand that by devolving those things, that those uh, constituent parts are important and have the right to be heard. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important. There are so, uh, there are some safeguards within the trade deals with New Zealand and Australia. Would they? Would I like them to have gone further? Naturally, yes. Um, New Zealand haven't met their land quota with the UK for a number of years, and that set at quite a high bar uh, because uh, taking evidence from Sam Lowe, economist and trade specialist in the Hour Committee, the focus on Australian and New Zealand produce is uh, the Asian market and the growth of the Asian market there and how we came up with a figure of what percentage of middle class earners would be globally and how they would be concentrated within within Asia and that market is important to them. Um, but what we don't want is, and we've seen that in the last 18 months with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is markets shutting suddenly and then product having to end up somewhere, uh, dumping a product and flushing it into another new market. That does raise concern uh, and I think we have we all have a role to do in terms of pr promoting to the consumer British and Welsh produce I think that's really really important as well uh, so in, and so supermarkets have a role to play in that and ensuring that British produce is put front dead and centre in supermarkets across the UK rather than having specific displays on two for three or three for twos of New Zealand lamb or something like that let's have uh, a system that actually supports our farmers from gate to plate as it were. Mm. I think that's really important but uh, yeah that's that's kind of uh, a perspective from from me on those. Carol I'm just I'm again fascinated to, to get what your perspective is on uh, one have you noticed any issues or any of your colleagues noticed any issues in terms of exporting goods to uh, other markets now we're not in the EU and also what your general feelings are and whether the trade deals have caused any sort of concern uh, amongst farmers? 
I think the general concern all the time is going to be is until we actually see it at the market, get, you know, in the market or in that, when we take our lambs to thing and you get you, you get that money back and it's not what you expected it. That's when it probably hits home. That's when probably the majority of farmers actually realise what's going on. And um, you know, the deal's been done way before then. It just takes its time to trickle down and actually the damage has been done then. Um, and I think it's just like like Sam and, and Sam has mentioned before about us as farmers sort of promoting ourselves and advertising that and, and what we you know what when we do get any subsidy or anything that how how broad that money gets spread around and passed around the economy um and until that damage until the potential deal after the deal is done and, and the damage is called filtering this way down potentially with 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 more um you know using lamb whatever coming in until that damage is seen you know in the actual community that's when people actually realize oh, actually perhaps that wasn't a good idea and you know and and it's same with most things it, take, it takes its time to filter its way down into the actual pocket of the farmer as such um and i think that's yeah again that's where you'd like to think the people that are doing these deals are thinking that but i don't think they are i think you know i think they're just thinking like you said to get that quick sort of headline and get and get and you know, get the front page of the thing that the deal's been done. It's all great. We're doing a fantastic job of being on our own now, and not and not within the EU. Um, but actually, you know, it, it's same. It's it's same with anything. It, it's it's a really stupid analogy, nothing to do with agriculture. But like vaping now is really fashionable. But in ten years' time, we're potentially going to have a damaging whole damaged nation. You know, it's going to take that time to filter down, and it's the same going to be with with all, with with this now. The deals that have done. That you know, it's it's gonna the worst language is gonna be a loss because less people are gonna be in the, in the areas. You know, the, we're gonna lose we're gonna lose hold of our of our sort of countryside really if, if things aren't if things aren't thought of now. Do you feel like you were consulted very well during this process? Do you think farmers were consulted well during this process, either by Welsh or UK governments, in terms of what you actually wanted out from future trade policy? And not really, but I think as farmers, it's probably our own fault as well. Sometimes we like we're very good at just. Getting through the back door, putting our wellies on, getting amongst it, and carrying on, and and taking our lambs to market, and then we come back and we have another trade we wanted. Then probably realizing, oh, actually, why has that happened, and why is it? And then sort of tracing back, but it's too late by then, I think. And yeah, I think that's why we we I think as farmers we need to be more proactive, and we need to be talking to people like these guys on the panel today, and you know, getting their opinions that we can throw back then, and you know, digesting it all really. You know, just on that one, I just want to highlight the fact that, you know, the farming unions, to be fair to UK government, and I haven't been very fair this far, perhaps, <laughs> um, but they have consulted with us, um, but they haven't listened. Um, so they have, certainly, we've had consultations with them on a regular basis. Uh, and Sam is absolutely right in, in his comments, actually, and Sam Lowe, who gave evidence, is a, is, is a fantastic mm. uh, expert on trade. I, I accept the arguments that if everything stays the same, it's highly unlikely that the open access that's been afforded to New Zealand and Australia will immediately result in a glut of beef landing in the UK or a glut of lamb landing in the UK. But we live in an uncertain world. And if you ask Australian wine growers what happens when China gets annoyed with them, the answer is they slap a 200% tariff on. And what happened at that point was that there was certainly no market for Australian wine in China. And what the Australian government and the New Zealand government have managed to do at our expense, I would argue, is they have a safety valve. Uh, and there was no consultation. When we highlighted this issue, it was basically, well, we have to do a trade deal with Australia and New Zealand because that will then get us into CTPPP. Um, and so what they were basically saying was, you know, we are going to give them this access. And we hear what you say about things going wrong. And I think it's the dishonesty really of governments because when I was in the Ministry of Defence, the, the issue was that we have to, you know, this is prior to the Ukraine situation, the issue was that we had to focus more on the Asia-Pacific region because there was a deep, great deal of uncertainty and China was flexing its missiles. But when it comes to the trade deal, oh, you know, it'll be fine. All the food will go to China because it's so close to Australia and New Zealand. Why would they export it to the UK? 
Uh, and the reality is the Australian New Zealand government, they live in an uncertain area because China does dominate, so therefore they want to have that insurance policy and we've happily given it away. And the final point I would make, and, I, and this does make me laugh, but we're often said, why would they export it to the UK when they can export it to much closer markets such as China? fact of the matter is Beijing is closer to London than it is to Auckland. Um, so in terms of being close, you know, if you're sending it to Beijing, well, sending it to London, it's not a huge difference with the New Zealanders, it's just a cost that they have to absorb. So I do agree, Sam is absolutely right in making the point that he's made, but I, I do worry that if there's any change uh, in the wider um, political context in that part of the world, then the Australian and New Zealand governments have got their farmers a, a, a safety net that we haven't got. Uh, another significant pledge that was made during the Brexit process and is subsequently made by the UK government as well is this desire to improve our animal welfare standards. Sam, where do you think we are on that? Um, it's an interesting one, animal welfare standards, because we are renowned in, in the UK and Wales of having very good animal welfare standards and we're um, the introduction of CCTVs and slaughterhouses is just an example of that in ensuring that the consumer knows that Welsh British produce is, is well cared for, well looked after. Um, I just sometimes find it ironic that the argument looks specifically at, at livestock and when we have issues around, uh, for example, TB policy and the slaughter of cattle in calf cows and heifers on farm in front of farmers without the ability for that cow or calf, that cow to calf uh, with a little dignity, we seem to have a bit of a blind spot with animal welfare in our policy and that's the bit that really frustrates me. Yes, we're wanting to show to the consumer that we're protective of our animals and, and their welfare standards but sometimes that blind spot is so gapingly big that it causes real concern um, as well. Uh, TB, bovine TB, is a horrific disease for any animal that has it, including badgers who've had it. And there's a discussion around the removal of infected wildlife. And I know uh, the Labour Party's manifesto said uh, we forbid the cull of badgers to fight TB. Forbid is an incredibly strong word to use when scientific data coming out of England at the moment, Ireland and the, uh, Australia, New Zealand post um, infected animal culls have shown that it's it's beneficial. That just doesn't show to me that animal welfare standards are actually always um, universal and uniform across across the board, uh, and that's the part that um, that I think causes most concern because farmers are absolutely willing to do everything they can to look after their animals. Just take a, a look at the livestock sheds here today at the Royal Welsh Show throughout the week. The care that goes into the the animals. Um, not just those that are uh, showing animals, but those who have their animals at home as well. It's, it's immense. So let's support them in ensuring that that animal welfare is, is uniform. And I think farmers would be far more, uh, far more invested and involved uh, in, with those discussions as well. And because I think the, the two unions do a great job uh, in, in lobbying. And um, I, I've had the benefit of my father being the FUW <laughs> chair of Pembrokeshire for, for 12 months. So the lobbying's been on the kitchen table at home as well. <laughs> Um, so I thought I'd get that in there for uh, for the Farmers Union of Wales, but it, it is important, and they do have um, they do have uh, those discussions with us regularly, and, it, and it's important that that continues. But on animal welfare, I think we really need to uh, ensure that blind spot has a spotlight shone on it, and so um, so that's something that I think the minister is taking into account. I pressed her on this, and and we've shared a horrific story of a, a farmer having to hold a cow with a gate, an, an in-calf cow uh, up against a fence and gate while it was um, uh, shot and killed because it was an infected animal and it failed a test. Uh, and then the calf is writhing in its womb as it suffocates and drowns. I'm sorry, that's not animal welfare standards that a government should be advocating for. 
and the fact that we in Wales don't have the opportunity that they do in England to allow the farmer to decide what they wish to do, allow, set up a, uh, an isolation pen so that cow and calf can, um, can, that cow can give birth with a bit of dignity. Uh, Intra-room transmission of TB is, is low, if at all. So that cow could calve, that calf could be replenishing the stock that's lost to TB and this could be a better way of doing it. So that's something that I'm working on and I'm pleased that the Minister has at least um, shown a little bit of willingness to, to look again at that. Carol, and then get to on this. Yeah, so like the like I mentioned, it's it's not it's not equal between all the all the species, really, is it? It's you know you, you say basically that it's it's fine for a cow to lose a calf in that way, but would how would Joe Public like it watching a badger doing the same thing? They, they wouldn't, and it's you know the animal welfare needs to be across the board for every single thing. So how you know differentiating between a cow and badger really in that in that kind of case, aren't they? And it's the same people, you know. People are really good these days from social media of calling farmers out on their welfare. You know, we've seen on some videos recently by some farmers from from North Wales, you know, having notes left on their cars, on their pickups because there's a lame sheep there. You know, people don't understand that maybe actually that sheep's been treated. You know, it's already done it. It's just healing, a healing process. People are very quick to call out when they see things, and I think. If we already have the standard there. You know that's why we farmers have been doing what they do for so many years. We've been we've been working with you know with um, uh, farm assurance schemes and that anyway to make sure we've got those standards are good. But like yeah, back to what Sam said about the TB issue. You know I I, I work on a, a local dairy farm and and the farmer there is just disheartened. He just you know if if something comes now he doesn't. There's only in, in his mind there's only one way to just stop it is to get rid of get rid of anything that potentially flags up. But then down the like down the road then he'll drive past a badger one night. And it's, you know, that could be his cause of his problem, but he can't do anything about it, really. It's not, you know, you'll get, you'll get absolutely clobbered if he does anything about it. So it's just that unfair, that, 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 yeah, it's really unfair between the different species, and it shouldn't be, really. Like, and that's, like we said, across the border, you know, things have been done on both sides of species, and it's, it's, it's potentially working its way, you know, it's doing a good, good job, really. Well, well, first of all, obviously, I would agree with Sam entirely on the standards being different in different circumstances, and that's unacceptable. Obviously, um, you cannot be in public life or involved with the unions to be aware of the fact that the concern for animal welfare issues, which is real and genuine and a good thing out there, but it doesn't necessarily look around the corner as to what some of that concern actually then results in. Uh, and obviously, the issues facing farmers in relation to TB is something which is a constant, constant matter for my county officers in the FAW, and it's an issue that we do take very seriously in terms of still trying to lobby the government to have a more pragmatic and sensible way forward. And if they still insist upon their position with regard to badgers, uh, the animal welfare issue that Sam has highlighted is really, really important. But I think there's a wider issue here as well, which is the standards in the UK in terms of animal welfare is something that we're rightly proud of. Um, I, I don't think that the government is, is arguing against those animal welfare standards, and certainly the industry is not arguing against that animal welfare standards. I was at a, a meeting earlier this week where it was very clear that one of the key drivers uh, for people when they're buying food is animal welfare. So having good animal welfare standards is really important for us as an industry because we can sell what we know to be a quality product and we can actually highlight to the general public that we do have welfare standards which are really very, very high. But I think there is an issue there because that high welfare standard comes at a cost um, because you know, that cost is, is borne by farmers. Farmers are happy to do it. But again, it does take us back to the fact that we do need a level playing field. So if we are going to have trade deals, for example, with other countries and allow open access to our markets, then it's essential that we at least have the same standards imposed upon other countries because free trade, uh, and that's the whole point of the single market, free trade is you have the same standards within that single market. So therefore, 
you're not going to be undercut on quality um, because you know the, if you're undercut on price you're undercut on price because you're, you're not as efficient but you're certainly working to the same standards the real concern we have as an union from an animal welfare position when it comes to trade deals is that the standards will be maintained in the UK and probably rightly so but then we're having deals with countries which have lower standards and that lower standard product from an animal welfare perspective is coming in and competing against our own products so there is huge issues here around animal welfare but we are committed to maintaining what we have and obviously supporting anything that people like Sam do in the Senate to try and mitigate some of the horrendous issues that our members are facing when it comes to issues around TB. And just on TB as well, this this is a little misnomer that the, the agricultural community want to go out and remove badges. That's not the case at all. If we're looking at tackling TB at its source, you need to ensure that the wildlife within an area is free of that disease. We at home, uh, we, we've got cattle at home on our farm. Very lucky that we've not gone down with TB. We have badger sets on our farm. We wouldn't look to touch our badgers. We have clean badgers, as we call them. So they're absolutely fine. They, inter they interact with the animals, but we ensure that we have biosecurity measures as well on the farm. That's not the issue. We're looking at the targeted removal of a known source of the disease. So there's two issues. There's the residual disease within a herd where one animal passes it along to another, and then there's the contact with the wildlife. If we're having um, stringent skin testing regimes where you're removing infected cattle, uh, but then the rest of the cattle that are in contact with the wildlife are reinfected, you never finally get rid of TB and become an official TB uh, free status. That's the issue. It's just trying to do a policy at the moment with one hand tied behind hand your back and coupled with that is the mental health impact on farmers and it was amazing to be at the FEW reception last night and see that over the last three and a half years £50,000 has been raised by the FEW for the DPJ Foundation uh, that's incredible uh, and they've had immense support because of the role that they play in helping farmers and the rural community and one of the causes of that mental health issue is is the pressures around bovine TB and that inability to have certainty, which we've discussed about, as to knowing your, your stock is clear, that you can move stock, that you're able to, to farm freely uh, because your hands are tied behind your back. Uh, and there's no little wonder that farming has one of the highest suicide rates of any industry in the United Kingdom. Uh, and that's something that really upsets me, that we are willing to put animal welfare standards quite rightly where they need to be. Where's the farmer welfare standards? Where are we looking after our farmers? Uh, and the irony, and I raised this, one of my first debates after being elected is the somewhat irony and hypocrisy of, of Welsh government supporting these charities, which is absolutely right for them to do, but it's sometimes their own policies which are causing farmers to feel the need to reach out to mental health charities. There's got to be better links there. And, and I know the DPJ have sat down with uh, AFA and the Welsh government to talk about wording and how Welsh Government contacts farmers around an issue such as TB, but there's still better things that we can be doing to support farmers' mental health and putting it on par with our animal welfare expectations as well. Carl, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I'll just, really, it's, um, we're seeing a massive really decline in the, in the herd anyway, aren't we? In the, across the country, people are going out of cattle between that and the NVZ regulations. You know, there's, there's no, why would you want to keep and try, try and farm a species that's you know, going to cause you the main stress really like it's you know it's not there's no reason to you know you, we, we buy a lot of wheelings in for our farm and you know we try and buy from clean areas but the, the regulations are different across each one you don't know how many times it's been tested and then you bring it home and then you, you get a phone call in a couple of days and you need to come out and test it anyway because that farm's gone down and the neighbor's gone down and it's just 
you, you, you do think sometimes when you've had the vet there, you know, every, you know, every quite regularly retesting is why you bother keeping them anyway. It'd be much, much less stress on the whole family if we just didn't bother keeping cattle. But, you know, it's got its benefits for, for the environment and from, from the, for the farm as well when you're farming with sheep. It's got its benefits. And at the end of the day, people like eating beef as well. So there's, you know, there's got to be beef around. But to me, it just sees, you see a lot of, you know, with dairy farmers going out now, there's, there's a mass amount of dairy cows leaving you know, leaving through markets now, and and there's some obviously people gambling and, and picking them up and and carrying on. But you know, it's it's got to come to an end eventually, and it's 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 another reason really not to be farming in cattle at the moment. Obviously, a lot we've we've touched on areas that are both devolved and not devolved. But I'm intrigued in your thoughts on who do farmers and the farming community, farming unions, really look to for leadership in terms of government you know, from from this area? Is it? Is it both? Is it do, do you need to rely on one more than the other? What would you say, Gita? Well, it's definitely both, but primarily at this point in time, it's the Welsh government's. But I'll just put that in context. So when I was an MP, um, I didn't often uh, see the FVW. I, I do actually remember the first letter I had from the FVW when I was an MP. I went on a radio programme and they did the classic question of a, of a politician: "How much the price of milk?" And I said, "Well, unfortunately, my milkman has given up his round, but you can have four pints." For a pound in Morrison's, and then got a letter from the uh, FEW saying I shouldn't buy milk in Morrison's. Then you can't win. Um, I'm not sure whether Morrison's is in the bad books any longer, just in yeah, case yeah. we have a complaint from Morrison's. Um, but the point at, at that point, um, basically, farming was about Cardiff and Brussels. Now, obviously, we need to talk to Cardiff and we need to talk to London. Uh, I think the priority at this point in time is to get the SFS right. But the elephant in the room, I suspect, is will there be any funding from Westminster in due course? And, you know, I know that Sam will be very supportive of us on this. But when it comes to funding of agriculture, obviously there was a commitment from Westminster to, to fund agriculture to the same level as uh, the EU would have done until 2024. I don't think that's been fully delivered. Um, you know, I think we are highlighting about 250 million that we've lost. But the key thing moving forward is the manifesto commitments for the general election, because we can end up with the Welsh government producing a sustainable farming scheme, which is more or less what we want. That's what we're aiming for, more or less what we want. And then we have a general election in which both main parties don't make a commitment to, 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 to farming at the scale that we want. And then the second challenge that we have is that quite often when Westminster spends money, then we get the Barnish Consequentials in Wales, which is about 5.2%. So if they spend £100 in England, roughly speaking, we get a fiver in Wales. If that happens with agricultural funding, then we're in deep trouble because when it was European money, we used to get about 10% of the total that came into the UK coming to Wales. So the challenge for both main political parties, well, all political parties, but certainly the two who will form a government in Westminster after the next election, is what's going to be the manifesto commitment to supporting agriculture and will you commit to ensuring that Wales gets a similar share to what we used to have under the European scheme? So Cardiff first to get the SFS right, and then we need to get the money from Westminster. So we're talking to both governments is the answer from an union perspective. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think there's um, the simplistically the day-to-day -day agricultural policy is in Cardiff, and then the long-term financials is, is Westminster. Uh, and I, four days at the, the Royal Welsh Show here, it's the day-to-day -day stuff. And I remember a farmer, actually, not long after I was elected, who I knew, uh, rang me up uh, and he said, look, uh, the one thing that could put my farming uh, farm out of business tomorrow is bovine TB and then VZ regulations. Those are predominantly or fully uh, Welsh government um, decisions. So that's where the day-to-day -day, uh, um, issues lie. And it's really pleasing to see the First Minister of the Royal Welsh and Rural Affairs Minister. She's been here. It, that is great. This is 200,000 people coming to Bilth Wells to celebrate Welsh agriculture and rural life, that's fantastic, that's what needs to be done. Uh, but there is now a role 
post-Brexit, that UK government has that involvement for the first time more so than it ever did during the common agricultural policy period. And that's replicated across the board if we're looking at post-Brexit funding uh, through local authorities. Local authorities are talking to Whitehall civil servants for the first time in their existence. That's, that's huge. That's a huge change of how things have been done over the years. So it's absolutely right. As we slowly start gearing up for a general election next year, I know I'll be making the case of what I'd like to see in that manifesto and an agricultural perspective. I hope that's heard, and I hope that the other parties are doing the same because it's it's integral that we get it right. Uh, and I would like as well the Welsh government in this consultation that's coming forward with the sustainable sustainable farming scheme later this year to put a figure on what it'll cost because then we've got something to go to Whitehall and HM Treasury to go right. It's going to cost us X to deliver Y. We want that, and then we've got somewhere to start because at the moment. The, the line that's being said from UK government is, well, what's it going to cost us? And they don't know yet because those figures aren't coming. It's chicken and egg in that case, but we'll, um, we'll keep pushing and, and ensuring that cases are heard. Carol, you know, as a, as a farmer, what, what are your, which government are you sort of most either looking forward to an announcement from or sort of cautious for an announcement from? Is, it, is Welsh government connecting with rural communities, do you think? Yeah, I think it is better, a lot better now than it was definitely. I said, I guess, like Sam said, a lot of work being done on how the how the Welsh government approach farmers and how the you know how the wording and stuff is done properly. Um, so potentially, it's not the big bad wolf it used to be. You know, you used to kind of get a you get a text of RPW, you get a bit of panic as to what was going on. But actually, it's it's something straightforward, and it I think it, that's where the, you know, our unions and, and talking to our local MPs and everything is so vitally important because actually they can digest things for us, and it isn't actually that as bad as we think it is. Um, so yeah, I'd say Cardiff is. We're, we're looking there. That's where we look to first because you know we, we appreciate that's there's a lot of work going on um, devolved. So yeah, but I said for, for me locally, you know, we we talk to our local MP you know, without without with the union as well. We're, we're in constant conversation with them. And I, I anything I see coming through from Welsh government, I naturally go to the union first and say, you know, what is this? Is it going to affect me? And then and then work work it that way kind of thing. Um, but yeah. Thank you. Well, I just have a round of applause for our panelists, please. Um, thank you very much. Well, and I want to say thank you again to our panel. Thank you very much to Gitto Berb, to Samuel Kurtz, and to Carol Hughes. Another round. Uh, thank you very much for coming yourself uh, to this wonderful event at the Royal World Show. Thank you again to the FBW. Um, and yes, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please don't forget to find us on all the socials at Here I Pod or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.